come Holy Spirit and uh, intoxicate us with a vision of our future abundant life. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, recently, when I was in New Jersey, I committed a sin. Envy. Uh, I, ha- I have a, a friend who um, uh, owns something or lives in something that, uh, that uh, I want. It's a very nice rectory. Do you know what a rectory is? It's a, it's a, it's a house in which a, a priest lives, and, uh, and often it's owned by the church and maintained by the church. And this is the nicest rectory I've ever seen in my whole life. Uh, and uh, it's this stone building, not brick, stone, uh, kind of charcoal-colored, nine bedrooms, four bathrooms, mahogany bookshelves, a library that would, uh, that would just, um, I'm telling you, if you had it, it would automatically make you a smarter person. <laughs> and what's more, there's a secret passageway in the library to the church office. You you move one of the books and it comes out, and then it, I mean, who wouldn't be better off with a secret passageway? I think we all would. By stark contrast, right outside the front door, which is, um, uh, which has, uh, you know, above the door, purple wisteria, just to make the image complete, across the way from that door is a graveyard, in a rather decrepit graveyard. It hasn't been maintained terribly well. And there was a contractor doing work on the rectory at one point, and the contractor noticed the contrast and said to the minister, does it ever bother you? And uh, my friend said, well, no, you know, it doesn't end there. I want to speak about an abundant life. I want to speak about uh, Jesus' position as the gate to that abundant life. Uh, I want to talk about what it means to have an abundant life. In our passage tonight, which is a snippet from John 10, Jesus uses two agrarian images to communicate what he's all about. The first is the image of the good shepherd. That's the most prominent in the chapter. But he also, in the midst of talking about himself as a shepherd, talks about himself as a gate or a door. And I want to focus just on that tonight, the door image. And I have a, um, a, a simple way of explaining what I think is the core meaning of this passage. I want to speak tonight about the destination and the entryway. And we hear something about both the destination and the entryway in just two verses. I'm going to preach on two verses tonight, 9 and 10. I invite you to follow along with me as we consider the the Word of God. Jesus says, this starts in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We hear things about a destination and about an entryway. Start with the destination. Where we are going, where we are headed as humans, uh, we're going toward a safe, free pasture. It's safe, you won't get eaten there. It's free because you can come and go in peace. 
Um, and in this pasture, we experience what he here calls abundant life, a rich life, um, a long life, really, long life. Uh, uh, pastures are, uh, are uh, a fairly common biblical image uh, which, which intends to describe a place of solemnity, safety, and health, uh, often brought about by God himself. Uh, whenever the Bible is trying to give us a picture of what's to come, and remember, that's all we can handle right now. That's all we can have is a picture, images that he provides for us because it's not quite here yet. Uh, the, um, the images are often agrarian. You think of Psalm 23, right, about the Lord being your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and uh, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. You see this in Isaiah 11, where the prophet is describing the future in which God's world is coming together again and isn't so uh, barbaric and red and tooth and claw. And Isaiah 11 describes God's restored world as a field in which the... Um, the lamb lays down in safety next to the wolf, and the children can play with the snakes, and they don't bite them. They don't, there's no danger. And this is also true in Jesus' kingdom of God parables. The arriving of the kingdom often happens in a field, right? That's where the kingdom comes and manifests itself. You see this, and you know, there's a treasure hidden in a field, there's seeds scattered in a field, and then there's a mustard tree planted in the field that becomes a shading place for all the birds. The field imagery, this agrarian imagery, I mean, it goes right back to Eden in a sense, with a garden, and ends in Revelation with that garden in the New Jerusalem. But we have a, a picture of a, of a safe land, a good land, a nurturing land. Uh, I, I had a place like that when I was young. It was actually quite literally a pasture. You may know that I grew up in, in the middle of Harmony, Pennsylvania, a town uh, founded by a millennial cult. Another, that's for another day. Um, fascinating place. We didn't really have neighbors who lived close by, but we had a lot of uh, roads and paths in the woods. And uh, whenever life got difficult, I would go for a walk and uh, into this abandoned field in the middle of the woods. And I was there among you know the the nettles and the wildflowers and the the remnant wheat that was still struggling to grow in the midst of that overrun field. And uh, I think it was there where I, I really not only began to know about God, but know God. I would cry out and pray and encounter God in that place. And I think the reason why is that it was away from home, and it was beautiful, and it was safe. And maybe you've had a place like that. You know, maybe, it was your, maybe it's your den. Maybe it's St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, maybe it's this place. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's your kitchen where all the kids are gone. Well, God is portraying here a good and healthful land which we're going to come to uh, that gives us a better life. And in fact, what Jesus calls here an abundant life, an abundant life. Now, what does that abundance look like? Well, I want to say that there's like three interpretations. Here is a secret for, of like preachers. Whenever a preacher lists three things, the third one is always the best. Just, just you know. Okay, so here's the first interpretation. When Jesus said, I've come to give you life abundant, previously pictured by this pasture. Um, the first interpretation is this. Abundant life means that life as we experience it now, with its highs and lows, will be radicalized. So with Jesus, 
you can count on greater happy times and terrible times of agony. Some people think that that's really, really comforting. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Uh, there's a second option. Uh, no, people say it, does, it can't mean that, because Jesus, as he embodies life, embodies a good life, just promised a pasture, uh, and so it can't mean that. What Jesus means is that he's going to enrich and improve our lives right now. So if you're having a horrible time now, he'll make it a lot better. Now, there's a sense in which that's true, because we believe that even in the midst of a, of a crushed and crushing world, that the Holy Spirit, God's imminent presence, is here with us doing recreative, restorative work. We believe that remission of sins is preached now, that alteration in our hearts can occur now. We do believe these things. At the same time, they all happen within the context of a pretty, pretty, um, pretty broken place. And so not all of our experience is, after all, abundant. Not only do we have in the witness of Scripture itself the, the, the disciples and also the um, early Christian martyrs suffering, we have a promise from Scripture that you will suffer. So I, I question whether this text means that uh, abundance is promised in its entirety right here and now. You may know that there is a wonderful YouTube addiction out there called Lutheran satire. Uh, if you don't know what this is, you should. Uh, um, um, but it's a YouTube channel, and uh, they, they essentially just make fun of things. But in, in one of the most helpful pieces, uh, it, it portrays historic paintings of Christian martyrs who are in the midst of execution. Okay. But in the, in the clips, their mouths move. They make the mouths of the paintings move and speak. And as these people are being executed, the Lutheran satire site is making them read Joel Osteen's Twitter account. Okay, so my second favorite, I will now read unto you. It is John the Baptist. being He's decapitated. His head is being held aloft of a platter. And John the Baptist's mouth starts moving. And he saith unto us, Don't speak defeat. Instead, declare, I'm blessed, I'm strong, I'm healthy. This is going to be a great year. <laughs> and then there's the stoning of St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uh, where people are gathering around him to throw rocks at him. And St Stephen says, everyone has the right to their opinion, but, vict but victorious people have the right to ignore what is negative. And a man gripping a stone says, I'm going to throw my opinion at your head. <laughs> and Stephen says, yeah, I'm aware of that, Greg. All that is to simply say, uh, in a humorous way, that the abundant life Jesus is talking about here is not felt in its fullness in this life by his followers. In fact, his followers often have to suffer a great deal for the name of Christ. I simply want to say that the abundant life of which Jesus speaks is fully expressed, not in this life, though it does leak into this life in important, life-changing ways. But the abundant life in its fullness is fully expressed after this life is over, that abundance has more to do with longevity and, and permanence in an everlasting pasture. 
I want to say this because when, when John uses the word life in his gospel, he almost always has eternity on the brain. Almost always. Especially when speaking about the life that God gives to us. Just a few examples. You know John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 6, I am the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. I mean, you get the point. But as John is expressing God's gift to us, his gift of life, he often has a very, very long view, an eternal view. And so the point for Jesus is that life isn't truly abundant in a world of graves and little coffins and urns and, and anniversaries where, where we mourn the loss of somebody we love. It's not abundant in a world where we're afraid to die. It's not abundant whenever we have to see a loved one suffer so much and the doctors don't know what's wrong and they can't actually help. It's not abundance whenever we, 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 have, um, we have to take pills just to get by. They don't even make us happy. They just make us okay. In order for abundance to be expressed in its fullness, uh, we need a transformation of all of life. Yes, abundance rushes into this life through Jesus, but it's not enough right now, right? I mean, just think about your own situation. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. That's where he talks about Jesus' resurrection and its implication for our future resurrection. And this is what St. Paul says. It's fascinating. And I read it in, with fresh eyes this week. He says this, If in Christ, notice that, if in Christ, not outside of the redeeming work of Christ, if in Christ, that is, if, um, if we who have heard the message of forgiveness of sins We've been baptized, we've been given the Holy Spirit, made the children of God. If in Christ, we have hope in this life only, that is for the renewal of things presently, if that's the case, we are of all people most to be pitied. If life here, albeit with all of its improvements and changes and morphings, is all we've got, it's not enough. And it doesn't match up with the abundance that Jesus speaks about C.S. Lewis puts it this way, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. The abundance that Jesus promises us is beyond flowers and formaldehyde. The salvation that God has promised us in Scripture is as broad and deep as it can go, as it can venture. God saves us from our guilt, from our moral capitulation, from our isolation, and lastly, from morticians. 
He is not content simply to forgive you. His contentment will not be met until he raises you from the dead. And so um, that's the destination, ultimately, in which abundance is fully known. But there's also an entryway that we have to consider. An entryway. Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And go in and go out and find pasture. Uh, You may know in, in the ancient world, and I discovered that this is still true in Ireland, where evidently farming techniques have not drastically improved since the Bronze Age, um, uh, they have these uh, fences that are really not fences, but walls constructed of stones, large stones that farmers have put there over the years. Uh, the sheep now find a way to work their way around them, but, uh, but there were gaps in those stone walls where there used to be gates. And some people believe that Jesus, describing himself as a gate, is, uh, is in some way referencing the ancient shepherding pattern of putting all the sheep in the big uh, walled-off pen and then laying down in front of the door keep them in. Um, Maybe, maybe not, we don't know. Um, But I want to note three things about Jesus' statement, I am the door. He's portraying himself, God with us, as a door. Uh, First, just note that he is a door, that when God comes among us, the eternal breaking into the temporal, he's not a wall. He's not a tower with a gunman on top. Uh, This isn't Genesis 3. You remember what happens that were walled off after, after the fall. Now, he's a door. He's, this is an invitation to relationship, an invitation to uh, connection. Second, note that a door in and of itself isn't a place, but is something that connects two places. It's a mediating entity. Jesus is here connecting uh, the disheveled world of rebellion with the peaceful, calm world of God. And he's the way you get from one, shift from one to the other. Notice, too, that Jesus said, I am the door, not I am among the doors. He seems to have a singular vision regarding his own role and responsibility in the world. You know, Christianity is a religion of striking singularity, not in its audience, thank God, right? This is the the odd thing about Jesus. He'll take just about anybody. But there is only one entrance. And the reason is, of course, that no one... Uh, no philosopher, no rabbi, no great teacher, no, uh, no astronomer um, could ever supply what Jesus has supplied, which is atonement. Nobody else can do that for you. Even if they were to give their lives for you to walk in front of the train and push you out of the way, that doesn't take your guilt away. But if you have an innocent lamb, somebody who willingly gives his life as a sacrifice in which your guilt is imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to you, then he can be a mediator between you and God, and he can fix the problem. And so Jesus has this unique role as the singular door. Uh, and uh, I, I, I want to I connect this to us now, the, the uh, destination and the entryway, by saying that, you know, there are other doors in the world that promise abundant, never-ending life. A lot of doors out there. You know, uh, even with the rise of, of a more secularist mentality, people, <clears throat> because, after all, a wise man wa- once hath said that eternity is planted in the human heart. Eh, it's kind of hard to scrub it out, get away from it, uh, eject it from you. Uh, because of that, <clears throat> people still do think about what comes next. <clears throat> Speculate 
about how you get there. Um, and uh, there are many answers given. I want to talk about two of the largest and most popular doors that people uh, try to open to figure out how to, how to move on uh, to the grander shore. <coughs> two uh, large doors that have words printed on them, attractive words, words with credibility, but words that are misused and misapplied when it comes to, to entering the door, the true door. Here are the uh, two doors with the words printed on them uh, that, that actually don't lead to the pasture. The first one we'll call virtue. Nothing wrong with virtue. A lot right with virtue. Uh, your spouse would not want to live with you if you were not virtuous. Your neighbors would despise you if you had no virtue. Not knocking virtue. But many people do believe intrinsically that oneness with God is achieved to some degree when our goodness, what we've produced, outweighs our badness. And the more good we do, the more likely it is that we will experience, at the end of our days, benevolence rather than hostility. But when we open that door, we don't find a pasture. What we find is Mount Everest. We're staring up at a mountain, and we don't have a pack, and we don't have food, and we don't have shelter. We do have companions, but they're far away. And we, and we struggle, we climb, it starts getting cold, and we notice that, hey, next to me, about 100 yards away, is my, is my brother. Huh, I wonder how he's doing better than me, because he was always such a loser who never got his life together. And then we fall back 20 yards. And that keeps happening to us. Every time we get ahead a little bit, we then fall behind again. Until all of us, out of either despair or exhaustion, collapse at the bottom of the mountain, never making it. You see, when it comes to ethics and morality, what we often do, uh, instead of understanding the holiness of God in all its totality, the sacred character of God and all of its beautiful and terrifying brilliance, we just lower the market. Isn't that why you dated whom you dated? You just lowered your standards. Now, not you, but other people, your friends who are not here tonight, the friends who skip church today. You see, this is, this is the problem that, we, that virtue is truly measured by God's holiness, and according to Romans, all of us have fallen short of that glory. We can't even touch it. It's just too, it's too vast, too great, and we are too far fallen. And so there's not a lot of hope behind that door. The second door is what we could call religion, just in general. The performing of certain rituals, the mulling over uh, important ideas, and the quest for truth. When we open this door, we don't find a pastor, but instead we find a mirror. I have found that many people love religion because it congeals in them a sense of superiority, a sense of being on the right team rather than the wrong team. A sense of having the right ideas, as opposed to others in our lives who have missed the mark. And it's easy, when you think you're right, to label, dismiss, and categorize everybody else. You know, I may not be perfect, I mean, who is? But uh, I'm not a liberal, after all. <laughs> Whatever that means. At least I'm not gay, right? I'm not divorced. Truth is, for many, religious practice is a mirror the focus is not, despite all the protestations, is not God, but us. And the more we stare at ourselves thinking that we have reached some personal grandeur, 
because of religious devotion, we become God's madmen. And we don't help the cause, we just hurt it. How can you tell if the object of your faith is seen in a mirror? How can you tell? If Jesus Christ has not made you, over time, a humbler, receptive, and loving person, you've probably been knocking on the wrong door. Jesus has this effect on people, you see, because true religion has as its center a foreign object. Isn't it wonderful that we don't have to worship ourselves anymore? A foreign object, Christ, and he's the one who smashes the mirror to pieces, stands by himself to be your only focus, to take your eyes off of yourself and on to someone else who is a heck of a lot more sufficient and has accomplished something that we never could. And so I urge you, friends, not to follow the tempter or the thief who often points us to the wrong door and says, put all of your hopes there and knock until your knuckles bleed and then climb or stare. Instead, you can slam them shut because there is an alternative, a person, a person who dove into the black sea of death and drained it dry a person who loves us too much to let us die. This is, for our purposes tonight, our third act revelation. That Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners on death row. Jesus came for sinners who can't appeal anymore. Uh, Jesus came for all of us, the criminal masses who walk the green mile, for junkies and for moral stragglers who can't even see straight, let alone walk straight, for wanderers who wander too much, for vagabonds who lack appropriate responsibility, for fear-mongering twitches, controlling and at the same time insecure men, ferocious women, body starvers, resenters, bigots, and the IRS. This seemingly indiscriminate door calls to you, whispers your name into the wind, and says to you, turn. Turn from all of it. Turn away from the other options, the other alternatives, which will never take you home. Turn away from everything you've ever known and come to me. Not after you fix your life, not after the wreckage is cleared away, but come to me now. Come to the gate now. Because as we enter the door, we see marked on the lintel and doorposts of that passageway words printed in large letters, in crimson ink, saying, I will love you until the end of time. In the, that abundance, we will surely discover that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And then may the revels begin. Amen.